All right, turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. We're looking at verses 11, 12, and 13. You all ready to get into God's Word? Good. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here and worshiping with the saints. We thank you for the instruments. We thank you for the voices. Thank you for the worship team and their leadership in bringing us uh, before you to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we pray, even it's September and, and the children are getting ready for their Christmas presentation, and I pray we'd use that as an opportunity for outreach that friends and family would come, would hear the gospel, would respond um, by your grace to it. And Lord, we ask that you would give protection uh, to this church that you would have your hand of protection um, upon us, God, against the schemes of the enemy, that you would um, help us to be vigilant uh, in seeking you, vigilant about putting on the full armor of God and uh, doing the battle, the spiritual battle that you call us to. Lord, grant us ears to hear today your word and to put it into practice, not just hear it, but to do it, God, for your glory. All right, we're going to be looking, there's actually three prayers that we're going to look at here, um, and we're going to look at one of the prayers today in these three verses. I was uh, reading a story recently about a coworker who was asking his friend, um, and he saw his friend, he's like, I, I thought you were, uh, you were going on a diet, he had a, a jelly donut in his, in his hand, he's like, I thought you were going on a diet, and he's like, well, I, I, I told the Lord when I was driving by the donut shop that if there was a, a, a front spot. That I was going to take that as a sign that I could get a donut and break my diet. And he's like, and, and after the eighth time around the parking lot, a spot opened up. <laughs> All right, which is sometimes how we can treat prayer, right? Right? We can kind of manipulate prayer or manipulate the Lord to, to oh, that, that must be from the Lord, after we've kind of tweaked those circumstances a lot. Well, we're going to do something a little bit different for just a moment. We're going to talk about grammar. All right, many of you know I taught Latin for uh, 20 years, and so my Latin students know a lot about grammar. Uh, I find out that adults don't know too much about grammar all the time. But when we talk about grammar, we talk about the English grammar, we have tenses, right? Someone name some, for me some of the tenses. Okay, past and present. Okay. Can you get a little more specific? Thank you. The pluperfect. We got past, present, and pluperfect. What's that? <laughs> present, the progressive, yes. What else? The conditional, that kind of gets into mood a little bit. <clears throat> okay, okay, the future. No one even said the future. What? Oh, okay. So, there's basically six, and then those six actually can be kind of almost like have 
their own little branches, but there's the present, the future, and the imperfect, the future, uh, excuse me, the perfect, the pluperfect, and the future perfect. Those are tenses. But let's talk for a second about, because a lot of people can name at least one or two tenses. Um, what about moods? And don't be like bad mood and good mood. That's not what I'm... That's, okay, the subjunctive... The imperative, good job. That's that's the second. The indicative, Susie, Susie, Susie should be up here teaching this today. All right, she knows it. The indicative, and there's um, there's actually one more, but most people don't know it. All of this was a setup for this point that I'm going to make in a second from the Greek. The optative. The optative. And in, this, in these three verses here, look at the text because I want you to see it. When it says, uh, verse 11, that word uh, in the ESV, it says direct at the very end, direct their way. That's in the optative. When it says in verse 12, make you increase and abound in love, that's in the optative. And then in verse 13, establish your hearts, that's in the optative. You're like, well, why is that important? Because I think um, these are prayers and if we just quickly read stuff sometimes, we actually miss that fact because it's not like Paul doesn't say, I pray this for you, or here is my prayer for you. So the optative is one of two ways that prayers are expressed in the New Testament. So you come across the optative, and you know that a prayer is being expressed. Usually it's seen by the words, uh, the key word may. Now may the Lord do this, may the Lord do that, may the Lord do this. The imperative is the other one. Look at Matthew 6, just briefly, so you can kind of see the imperative at work. Keep replacing Thessalonians because we're coming back. But Matthew 6, you all there? Okay. The Lord's Prayer. This is, you know, Jesus himself instructing us. Verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When it says, hallowed be your name, that's in the imperative. Your kingdom come, that's in the imperative. Your will be done, imperative. Give us this day our daily bread, imperative. Forgive us our debts, imperative. Normally, if you're just speaking normally to someone, an imperative is a command. But when, when we use it in the context of prayer, it's a request. You know, Lord, I'm asking for daily bread. Lord, I'm asking you for... I'm requesting for you to forgive my transgressions. So those are the two different ways we see prayer when the writers want to let us know clearly that that's what's going on. You see this throughout the New Testament. What's interesting is that this optative form actually started to disappear around the 3rd century B.C. So about 300 years before the time of Christ. Today it's almost non-existent in modern Greek. And what you see is that with the Septuagint, do you all know what the Septuagint is? No? Okay. I'll take your lack, of, your lack of voicing anything that you're not sure. So the Septuagint is the Old Testament written in Greek. What was it originally written in? Hebrew primarily. Okay. So what happened was as the Jews dispersed from Jerusalem over hundreds, even thousands of years, the Hebrew kind of morphed loosely um, into Aramaic. 
and they lost their, their ability, especially if you're not in Jerusalem, they lost their ability to read Hebrew. Well, that's not good, right? If you're a Jew. So what did they do? It ended up getting translated into the common language of the day, the Greek. It's actually very important for Greek, Greek studies. So this, you see the optative quite a bit in the, in the Septuagint, about 400 times. The Psalms use it a whole lot, right? Which makes sense because many of the Psalms are prayers. In the New Testament, it's used 68 times. Paul uses it 28 times, but 14 of those are his famous uh, meganoita. May it never be. May it never be. Romans, think of Romans. Like 10 times he says it. May it never be. But nine of those times, so he uses it, how many times did I say? 28. Nine of those occur in First and Second Thessalonians. So almost a third of them. <clears throat> Why is that important? Because I want us to know, and when you're reading your Bibles, not just in First and Second Thessalonians, but I want you to know when you come across that phrasing, that that's actually a prayer. Why is that important? And this is like big picture thinking here. Because if Paul's praying something for his church, then that's a prayer that you can pray for people at your church, for people at this church. That's a prayer that you can pray for your family members. That's a prayer that you can pray for yourself. Because a lot of times you're like, oh, I'm not sure how to pray. I'm not sure how to pray. Well, 99.9% of the time, you're not going to go wrong praying a prayer in the Bible. So <clears throat> it's a good thing to, to look for and turn to. And then if, when you're having your quiet time, you, you know, you could, you could jot down those 68 occurrences and incorporate that into your prayer and see how God wants you to be praying. So we're going to look, there's three different prayers here. Briefly, let's look at what those prayers are. Verse 11, it says, may God, the Father, and Jesus direct our way to you. So they want to be directed back to the Thessalonians. Uh, verse 12, may the Lord greatly increase your love for one another and for all. So the focus is going to be on an increased love. And then verse 13, may the Lord establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the coming of Jesus. We'll look at each of those prayers this week. We're going to look at the first prayer. May God the Father and Jesus direct our way to you. Now, why would Paul pray this? Because remember, Satan had prevented him and his cohorts from going back to Thessalonica. Look back at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And we need to remember something. Satan is always at work. And one of the things he does is to hinder. He's never going to help you one single bit. Okay, He won't help you. His great work, one of them, is to hinder, and to hinder, and to hinder. And he is always seeking to take you down. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What do we see here? Satan uses unbelievers for his purposes. The prince of the power of the air. Where is he at work? In the sons of disobedience. He's working. How? Well, one, to prevent them from coming to Christ. Two, to use them for his ignoble purposes. And three, to mess up the kingdom of God as best he possibly can. So we have to remember, Satan's always at work. Look what we're commanded to do because of this. First Peter chapter 5. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So we're supposed to be sober-minded. We're supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to be vigilant. Why? Then look, your adversary is the devil. What? He's up to no good. He's up to no good. He's ready to go. He looks for an opportunity, and he seizes it. It's not if. Satan will do something. It's when he'll do something. We even see this one specific example in Revelation chapter 2. I bet you've glossed over it before. This is what John is writing to the church in Smyrna, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, did, did Satan himself appear and, and, and take ten of, and throw them into prison? No. But was he the one who orchestrated it? Yes. So, so Satan's working. And we forget this. And, and, and the problem is we take too much of a secular approach to life. And we just look out. Even now we're looking and, and we see the physical. But there is a spiritual world. And we are so, we get so focused on the fact that we are physical beings. That's part of how God has constituted us. But we're also spiritual beings. We have a body. We have a soul. And we get very focused on, on the physical because it's all around us. You would have thought the, the invention of the telescope or the microscope, either one, would have given us a different perspective and kind of opened up our eyes that there's like a whole new world out there. Okay? Same with the spiritual. Think of the story in 2 Kings. You know the story about Elijah and his servant? It's a good story. Let's just look at it briefly. 2 Kings. So the king of Assyria is trying to attack Israel, and every time he comes up with a plan... The Lord reveals it to Elijah. And then Elijah tells the king of Israel so that they can 
avoid the catastrophe. Starts out, verse 8, Once when the king of Assyria was warned against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Assyria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So we have the physical world, but we have the spiritual world. And Elisha's servant probably best typifies kind of where we can be at times. We're just seeing things from an earthly perspective, from a physical perspective. We need to have the eyes like Elisha to know that God is there, that he's in control, and that we're surrounded by an army of hosts from the spiritual realm to help us, to protect us, to preserve us, to fight for us. Here's the thing, friends. Satan has his plans, but God has his own plans. And God's plans, listen to me, God's plans always outdo Satan's plans. Has God overcome the enemy? Yes. I mean, what proof is there of this? Well, quite a bit. Think of, just think for a moment of Jesus' refusal of Satan's temptations when Jesus was on the earth. Not once did he ever yield. And Satan tried to tempt Jesus. How did he try to tempt him? Where he thought Jesus was most vulnerable. And friends, when it comes to temptation and the enemy, that is the temptation he will always bring to you. Whatever your flesh desires most, Satan will seize on it. He will capitalize on it. You have to resist. I mean, have you ever been tempted to go into Walmart and steal something? I mean, probably not. Maybe some of you have, but probably not. And probably many different reasons. But that's not, that's not your weakness. You don't have, in that particular area, a leaning towards sin. I do know people, though, that do struggle with that. No joke. With stealing. In that way. Same with sexual sin. There's some sexual sins that, that, that people here wouldn't com- think of committing. But others, they would. The flesh seizes and Satan capitalizes on those situations. Everyone has areas of weakness. They are prone to sin. 
everyone. And you have to resist, and you have to fight, and you have to strengthen yourselves by the Lord's strength in those areas so that you are ready. You have to put on the armor of God and be ready to fight. When the enemy catches you with your armor off, guess what that makes you as a soldier? Makes you vulnerable. Easy to injure. Easy to take out. But, but God is greater than the enemy. He's overcome the enemy. What other proof do we have? Well, there's this thing called the cross, right? The cross. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Who was dead in their trespasses in uncircumcision of the flesh? You. Me. All of us. And you. You. And you. And you and all of us. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what's the result? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Those rulers and authorities, those aren't earthly rulers and authorities. Time doesn't permit to, to get into it, but no one doubts that, that's studied it. He's not talking about Pontius Pilate or something like that. He's talking about the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, the demons, Satan himself, attacking Jesus, attacking the kingdom of God, attacking you. What did Jesus do? He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. Okay, if Jesus has the victory, here's this, this, this cool thing, friends. If Jesus has the victory and you're in Jesus, what does that mean? You have the victory. You have what Jesus has. Why? Because he gives it to you freely. Because you're united with him. That, that phrase, in him, it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around and, and we just read and we gloss past it, we gloss past it. I mean, it's all over the New Testament. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him. We just gloss past it. But you start to get a hold of that and, and what that means for your relationship with Jesus, it is, it is a powerful thing. It is talking about being united with him. Being united. It talks about that, that includes your, your fellowship with him. It includes your relationship with him. It includes how you relate to the Father. Because you're in Christ. What else is proof that God has overcome the enemy? How about the resurrection? Because death could not keep Jesus down. Even death. I like this verse in Romans 16. I want you to see it.
verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Exactly. Think about that for a moment. There's many things interesting in this verse that we could, it's a, it's a sermon in and of itself. The God of peace, the God of peace. I mean, think about that. The God of peace is the one that's going to crush Satan. But where is he doing it? Underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. That's what God's going to do. That's a guarantee. This God of peace is willing to go to war to have peace with his children. So whatever Satan hinders, God can overcome. Whatever Satan hinders, God can overcome. There's a hindrance, God can overcome it. Satan's thwarted things, God can overcome it. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying here. Satan's hindered him, what's he praying? God, let, let us be directed back to you. Let our paths cross again with the Thessalonians. So we have to remember, friends, God and God alone is ultimately in control. Not Satan, not the demons, not you, not me, not the United States. God. He's in control. A couple verses to point this out and to remind us. Psalm 33. Look what it says here, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. What stands forever? The counsel of the Lord. The plans of his heart to all generations. So his counsel, his plans stand forever. Your plans, they're subject to change. That's a good thing. Satan's plans, eh, God's going to have his way. Okay, God's ultimately in control. Look at Psalm 2. It's one of my favorite psalms. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Man, we got a lot of rage going on in our nation, don't we? Left and right, everywhere. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And we got all sorts of plotting going on, don't we? All over the place. It's crazy. Why do the nations raise, rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And what are they doing? Well, we find out. Against the Lord and against his anointed. So the kings of the earth, the rulers, they're standing against God and God's anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, any nation that will not recognize the one true God as its true king is a nation that is doomed, including this one. We might have started well, but we sure aren't going well right now. It doesn't matter what party it is. We're not going well. And we got many leaders 
and rulers in this nation taking their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But I love verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And these rulers, they think they have power. They think they have it figured out. They think they have a plan. They think they know what they're going to do. God's looking down from heaven and says he laughs. I mean, he chuckles. He looks, what? Yeah, go ahead. Try your best. The Lord holds them, verse 4 at the end, in derision. Then notice what he says. Then, verse 5, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is going to do exactly what God wants to do. The nations can try to thwart that plan. They will not. So look how Jesus handled Satan. He handled them. Look how Jesus handled the demons. He handled them. There's this passage in in Mark. Well, let's just look at, I know we're looking at a lot of verses today, guys. It's good sometimes to do that. So look at Mark. Hey, at least I'm turning to, you know, mostly books that you can usually easily find. I'm not doing like Malachi or Habakkuk or All right, did you find Mark? Okay, good. Hopefully, if you're using your phone, you easily find it, okay? uh, No, Mark. All right. Verse 21, And they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them... What's that? Chapter 1. Did I say the chapter? Okay. Sorry. I'm getting so excited here. Chapter 1, thank you. Feel free to interrupt me anytime I leave something out like that. Chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I just, every time Jesus has an encounter with the demon, I mean, by now, because you've probably read the Gospels a number of times, I mean, you just know it's an automatic victory. It's an automatic win. He's going to walk away with the W in his column. And notice what the people say, though. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. When Jesus gives a command to the demons, they have to follow. They have to listen. Isn't that interesting? 
Let me just make a side note. If, if the demons obey Jesus, how much more should we, his children? Right? All right, think about that later. So we need a bigger view of God. Satan might be hindering you, might be hindering your ministry to someone, might be hindering your growth, might be hindering your family, but you can pray for God to overcome the enemy in those areas in your life, in other people's lives. And I think sometimes, and the reason we're going to take these verses one at a time over the next couple weeks is because prayer is something that we know we're all supposed to do, but it's easy for us to, to push aside. And we look at praying kind of like kids look at vegetables on their dinner plate. You know, like, um, I know I'm supposed to, but do I have to? Uh, we see prayer as something that's not that great. We kind of reluctantly do it. Here, here's, a, here's something that I think applies for us specifically. We all know we need to do prayer, right? Anyone think they don't need to do prayer? Okay. But if we want unity in community, that's our theme for the next 12 months, prayer is going to be key. Prayer is going to be key. Because Satan loves to divide. He loves division. He loves disunity. It's one of his specialties. And how many churches do you know that Satan's got in there and broken it up because of di division and disunity? Okay, he's a master at his craft. And one of the things that strengthens the church, that Satan hates, is unity. People that are like-minded, coming together, being unified for the cause of Christ. A willingness to look small, petty differences. A willingness to give our brother or sister the benefit of the doubt. A willingness when we're not sure what someone's motives is, and they're a believer, especially... We give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't jump to wrongful conclusions. Be Satan pounces on those moments and seizes on them and plants a seed in your heart that when nourished will divide you and your brother, you and your sister. So if we want unity and community, we need to be a people, a people of prayer. Prayer for ourselves, prayer for one another, prayer for our church, prayer for our nation. We need to be people of prayer. And we need to walk, as the Bible says, in the spirit of unity at all times, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially with people that we've covenanted together at a local church. We need to pray. So I'm going to have Laura come up. I want us to be, I want us to be a people of prayer. Um, in, your, in your quiet times, in your prayer times, but also, but also here in our life groups. A flavor of prayer through what we're doing. 
And what I'd like us to do, actually what I want us to do, if you can, I want everyone to, to come forward down here. If you need a little bit more space, go over to the right. But I want everyone to come forward right now. I know, you're getting a little uncomfortable. I'm making you stand up. So what, <clears throat> what I want us to do is um, I want us to actually get into groups of about four to six and spend some time praying for the unity. And this is, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable. <clears throat> That's all right. Uh, groups of four to six, parents, you can have your kids with you. Um, and let's pray in those groups for the unity of the Spirit, to be present first in your life, present in your family, and then present in this church. All right, so go ahead, and, and I want, don't, don't just get with your family. Grab, grab some people um, from other families. So if it, the groups need to be bigger, that's fine, but go ahead and do that. Uh, so I was eating uh, lunch with a couple, couple of Liberty families last week, and um, it was actually an amazing, some amazing God-blessed conversation uh, but one of the things that uh, one of them mentioned just convicted me regarding prayer uh, and, and regarding this church. And so as I was, as I was chewing on it and reflecting on it um, throughout that day and the next, I was like, man, Lord, like, I, need to, I need to teach on prayer. Um, but I'm going through 1 Thessalonians. <laughs> and... I hadn't let next, really, I knew there was kind of a break and a little transition in the next passage, so I really hadn't looked exactly at it. And so then when I sat down to look at it, what was before me was three prayers. And so I felt like, you know, here it is, God, right? Orchestrating, planning, working things out. And I feel like our church, um, me included, maybe me especially, we need to be people... Uh, about prayer, maybe we haven't done the greatest job of that. And I even think within within the service, at times, we need to give opportunities, even if it's at the, at the end, for people to be prayed over. It might be something big, it might be something small, but an opportunity uh, for those uh, situations. Um, and it doesn't always have to be uh, Justice or Greg or, or, or me praying. You know, if you see people being prayed over and you want to join that, um, you know, feel free to do that. I'd like to provide opportunities in, in the future uh, regarding that. And I'd like us to make sure that, I just want an emphasis, especially, obviously always in one sense, but especially these next, you know, as I'm teaching through this, I want to encourage each of us, um, let's take what I'm saying and really hopefully what the Lord is saying through me, whatever truth there is in that, and then let's put it into practice out, outside this sanctuary. Especially for the next month or whatever it might be, let's be in a season of prayer, uh, personally and corporately. Will you, we all covenant with me on that? Yep. All right. I'm going to turn it over to Justice and the worship.